besides having had, as their name implied, some French strain in their origin, who asked no favours and desired no attention. In the early years of her residence, she had made an attempt to see them, but this had been successful only as regards the little one, as Mrs. Prest called the niece, though in reality, as I afterward learned, she was considerably the bigger of the two. She had heard Miss Bordereau was ill, and had a suspicion that she was in want, and she had gone to the house to offer assistance, so that if there were suffering, and American suffering, she should at least not have it on her conscience. The little one received her in the great, cold, tarnished Venetian sala, the central hall of the house, paved with marble and roofed with dim cross-beams, and I did even ask her to sit down. This was not encouraging for me, who wished to sit so fast, and I remarked as much to Mrs. Prest. She, however, replied with profundity, "'Ah, but there's all the difference. I went to confer a favour, and you will go to ask one.' If they are proud, you will be on the right side. And she offered to show me their house to begin with, to row me thither in her gondola. I let her know that I had already been to look at it half a dozen times. But I accepted her invitation, for it charmed me to hover about the place. I had made my way to it the day after my arrival at Venice. It had been described to me in advance by the friend in England to whom I owed definite information as to their possession of the papers, and I had besieged it with my eyes while I considered my plan of campaign. Geoffrey Aspern had never been in it that I knew of, but some note of his voice seemed to abide there by a roundabout implication, a faint reverberation. Mrs. Press knew nothing about the papers, but she was interested in my curiosity, as she was always interested in the joys and sorrows of her friends. As we went, however, in her gondola, gliding there under the sociable hood, with the bright Venetian picture framed on either side by the movable window, I could see that she was amused by my infatuation the way my interest in the papers had become a fixed idea. "'One would think you expected to find in them the answer to the riddle of the universe,' she said. And I denied the impeachment only by replying that if I had to choose between that precious solution and the bundle of Geoffrey Aspern's letters, I knew indeed which would appear to me the greater boon.' She pretended to make light of his genius, but I took no pains to defend him. One doesn't defend one's God. One's God is in himself a defense. Besides, today, after his long comparative obscuration, he hangs high in the heaven of our literature for all the world to see. He's a part of the light by which we walk. The most I said was that he was no doubt not a woman's poet, to which she rejoined aptly enough that he had been at least Miss Bordereau's. The strange thing had been 
for me to discover in England that she was still alive. It was as if I had been told Mrs. Siddons was, or Queen Caroline, or the famous Lady Hamilton, for it seemed to me that she belonged to a generation as extinct. Why, she must be tremendously old, at least a hundred, I had said. But on coming to consider dates, I saw that it was not strictly necessary that she should have exceeded by very much the common span. Nonetheless, she was very far advanced in her life, and her relations with Geoffrey Aspirin had occurred in her early womanhood. That is her excuse, said Mrs. Prest, half sententiously, and yet also somewhat as if she were ashamed of making a speech so little in the real tone.